Hello, and welcome to episode four of the Digital Guardian podcast. I'm your host, Nate Lord, and joining me today are my co-host, Will Gragido, as well as special guest, Dan Cohen. Dan is head of product management for RSA Fraud and Risk Intelligence, and we're really excited to have him on board. Dan and Will, thanks for taking time to join us today, and why don't you guys take a couple minutes to introduce yourselves? Thanks, Nate. Hi, everyone. My name is Will Gradgeter. I'm the Director of Advanced Threat Protection here at Digital Guardian. And hi, everybody. My name is Daniel Cohen. I head product management for RSA's Fraud and Risk Intelligence Division, and we help protect millions of consumers from different types of attacks, mainly targeting their wallets and credit cards and bank accounts. Important thing. Awesome. Yeah. (laughs) So yeah, we're excited for today's episode. We're going to focus on some current events in cybercrime and fraud, and we're really excited to have Dan bringing some insights from his work to our discussion. So guys, let's start off with a threat that's as old as computers themselves. We're talking about phishing attacks. Dan, you mentioned you've seen recently an increase in phishing attacks. Can you fill us in on what's going on there? Sure. So yeah, I mean, that's that's an interesting way to open it as old as computers. And and it's actually true. I mean, phishing, you know, basically, you know, in phishing attacks, the attacker is trying to social engineer or basically get the end user, the person that they're attacking, get the end user to, to divulge, you know, personal information. And we've been tracking and, and carrying out anti-phishing operations for over a decade now. I think we started way back in 2004 and, you know, tracking the volumes of phishing and, and how, and kind of tying that also to the maturity of the underground and the, and the cybercrime landscape. Phishing over the years has constantly grown. You know, we used to see on average about a 10 to 12% increase year over year. But 2016 was was definitely the year of the fish, if we want to coin it that way, where we saw an increase of over a 240% increase year over year. So if in 2015, you know, we were handling about half a million attacks, in 2016, we closed off the year with nearly 1.3 million attacks that were launched around the world. So a very significant increase for a crime as old as computers. Wow. Yeah. What do you think would drive that increase just in the past couple of years? Any particular factor you've seen or? Well, I think, I mean, you know, phishing is, is basically digital pickpocketing. It's, it's the oldest trick in the book and it works. And so when you track, you know, when you look at what the bad guys are doing and, and their evolving tactics, they might, you know, they might improve the way that they carry out the social engineering and improve the, you know, the story behind the, the social engineer. But at the end of the day, you know, they're still leveraging phishing, you know, to trick individuals, to trick end users to, to carrying out, you know, some kind of action. I think with the recent year and, you know, looking at, again, the evolution of the cybercrime marketplace and the tools that are available out there, the fact is that a lot of the tools have become free. You know, when you look at malware, when you look at, you know, ransomware specifically, these tools are now free and available for anyone basically to use. And more so, they're also becoming available as a service. Um, So it becomes easier, you know, if you want to launch an attack, you no longer have to figure out, you know, malware development. You can basically find it, you know, in a software as a service type offering. And when you when you add that to the fact that it's incredibly easy to launch a phishing attack, it kind of explains this huge increase in, you know, throughout 2016, where we're seeing a lot of these bad guys or script kiddies leveraging, you know, the ease of phishing with the ease of getting their hands on ransomware tools and malware tools in general to launch the attacks. So, I mean, in short, you know, it's the ease of launching a phishing attack together with the ease of getting your hands on malware tools. And, you know, that together with that is basically explains the huge increase in in phishing. 
That's actually a really interesting point, right? So the, the ease of accessibility, whether it's to the tools themselves or to the services, has really broadened and increased probability of these attacks. Do you see more individuals outsourcing this type of activity than Dan, from your experience and your team's experience, or are we seeing more folks operating as individuals without the aid of a third party? That's a good question. I mean, you know, back in the day, cybercrime was was a lot more about, you know, small groups or, or very experienced and skilled individuals, you know, carrying out basically the, the entire crime. So, you know, if I was a fisher, I'd basically have to figure out how do I put together the fishing kit? How do I launch, you know, the attack itself? Where do I host it? How do I, you know, send out the emails, et cetera, et cetera. And over the years, specifically the last, you know, five to six years, Cybercrime has become more of a service-based marketplace. And so, you know, to your question, you know, do we see individuals leveraging, you know, this service-based economy? The answer is very much yes. You know, for example, if you wanted to hit an email list with 500,000 emails on it, you can find somebody who would offer that as a service. Last I checked, that was going for about 40 to $50 would be the cost of, you know, emailing 500,000 email addresses with, you know, your phishing attack. So if you think about it, I mean, that's really no money. You know, you basically find, you know, some site, you compromise the site easily. If it's, you know, a blogging site, you plonk your phishing attack on that server, and then you pay somebody 50 bucks to launch, you know, the campaign against 500,000 emails. And if you get like 10% success rate, which is, you know, pretty much the going rate for, for successful phishing attacks, then that's you scoring, you know, 50,000 usernames and passwords or 50,000 credit cards. So incredibly easy, incredibly accessible, and, and most definitely using, you know, this service-based economy to launch these attacks. Dan, you mentioned a 10% success rate as kind of the going rate for phishing attacks today. Is that a open rate on those phishing emails or, or literally 10% of what a cyber criminal might send out is successful in infecting a machine or extorting an end user? So the 10% is really kind of what the bad guys advertise. So, you know, as this market has become more commercial, obviously there are more, you know, so-called vendors in the underground offering their services and they're fighting basically over, over market share and, and customers. And so usually you will see, you know, when somebody promises success rates for their type of attack, it'll be around the 10 to 12% success rate, which means you know, of the 500,000 emails or, or, you know, X number of emails that you're going to hit, 10% of them are going to fall victim to the phishing attack and provide their, wow. you know, their personal information. And usually, you know, that's a metric that you kind of measure the success against. So, you know, there are cases and, and again, you know, the underground has become a very much service oriented marketplace, customer service is a very key element of, you know, this ecosystem. And so if you don't get your 12, you know, your 10 to 12% as agreed upon when you, you know, kind of struck this deal with the vendor, you could, you know, get your money back, you know, they'll agree to launch another attack for free, et cetera, et cetera. So that's kind of where the numbers come from. Hey, Dan, this is Will. I've got a question with regards to that. In your experience, aside from the obvious, perhaps lack of skill set or infrastructure, do you see it as being a transference of risk opportunity? And is that, the, is that a major attraction for, I'll say, less experienced criminals or, or less savvy criminals, or even savvy ones who just want to be able to tap into that 10% that you're talking about a moment ago, while at the same time establishing plausible deniability from an underground perspective? Is that a factor at all that weighs into this? And do the purveyors of the services know and understand that and, and still accept that risk on their side in order to gain 
greater and greater audiences from a business perspective? That's a good question. So from our experience, and this is kind of going into the demographics of cybercrime and, you know, the different geo, you know, not geopolitics, but the different, the geos and how they, you know, interact in, in this, in this space called cybercrime. And when you look at maybe the Russian speaking arena, you know, deniability is a very key factor and, and protecting their identity and SecOps is a major fact and you know as they're carrying out their business but when when you kind of look at you know maybe latin american cybercrime west african cybercrime the whole you know shifting of risk you know the risk of will i be caught by law enforcement is not so much a factor from what we see and so they'll basically you know they'll leverage these services just because it's easy and accessible and it saves them the work because you know they're they're pretty lazy the so-called hackers that we're talking about they want to make a quick buck, you know, they want to send out their phishing email, capture, you know, whatever thousands of credentials and then sell them off to the next guy. And the next guy will, you know, will whatever, you know, hack the accounts or transfer the money. But if you consider the service based marketplace, it saves me the effort and time. So, you know, I'll just go ahead and, you know, pay this guy that whatever it is, the 50 bucks to launch the campaign. I'll get my credentials, you know, I'll steal the credentials, I'll then sell them to the next person. And that's my business. You know, that's me, you know, my link in the in the cybercrime chain being fulfilled. So again, you know, to your question, it depends on who you are, you know, who you are, Mr. Hacker, and how important is it to you to shift the risk? Most of the world, the cybercrime world, it's not that important. And obviously, some areas such as the Russian speaking space, you know, maintaining security of identity and security of operation is a lot more important to them. Got it. Excellent. That's an interesting point that it varies geographically, right? I guess in a sense that ties into the to the old idea that, you know, if you've got nothing to lose, the risk is worth the reward, you know. Not that I'm encouraging crime by any means, but, <laughs> but I think from a an acceptable risk perspective, it's easy to understand why to your point in some geographic theaters the risk is is less of a concern than in others. And I would imagine, yeah. yeah, I would imagine some of that is due to sophistication and just how well or how seriously they approach their activity as a business versus just a, a way to make easy money, right? Exactly. And, and, you know, coming back to kind of the, the geographies and, you know, and the demographics of it. So, like, you know, we're speaking about the, the Russian speaking, you know, cybercrime landscape, which is, you know, if you take a step back and look at it, you know, this is the number one source of, you know, software tools, for example. A lot of the software tools, you know, malware and, and whatever it is, a lot of it is sourced from the Russian speaking underground. When you look at the Chinese speaking underground, a lot of it is about hardware. So, I would go as far as saying that, you know, the Russian speaking underground is number one in software, whereas the, the Chinese speaking underground is number one in hardware. Anything from, you know, you know, sniffing, sniffing hardware, ATM hardware, skimming hardware, you can find that, you know, a lot of that happening in the, uh, in the Chinese speaking underground. And it's an interesting conversation because when you get into kind of the cultural aspects of it, it's, it's fascinating. You know, when, you, when you're in the Russian speaking space, you have to be very courteous, very professional in your dealings with, you know, with the vendors or as a vendor, you know, that's very much expected. Whereas, you know, when you're when you're in the Chinese speaking, you know, arena, it's a lot more of a almost how, you know, if, if you close your eyes and, and envision yourself walking down a Chinese marketplace and, you know, everybody's very loud and all these vendors are shouting, you know, what they're selling. It's, it's very much, you know, that's kind of the experience of it. Very loud, very fast paced, you know, kind of marketplace and very untrusting also. I mean, they don't like outsiders. And so it's, yeah, the demographics is, a, is an interesting conversation to have. 
Interesting. Yeah. Now that's that's you actually you've piqued my interest with respect to something. So I think my own experience echoes yours with regards to the deltas of sophistication with regards to software versus hardware. What's interesting about that, and again, the hat being tipped with respect to software development to the to the Russian speaking ecosystem versus the Chinese. But what's interesting is that what you're talking about with regards to the nexus between cyber criminal activity and physical tools to achieve those ends, right? So whether it's you know credit card skimmers or whether it's some type of sniffing device or another tool that's used for actually gleaning information from a machine for financial purposes, does that also extend to infiltration of firmware in that particular cyber criminal ecosystem on devices? Or are you seeing more of their efforts being targeted again, more toward quick and easy ways to tap into the financial ecosystems on a global basis for credit cards and things of that nature? I would say yes, but I mean, we have to remember that when you're tapping, you know, the, the cybercrime marketplaces, a lot of what happens there, you know, the more vocal stuff that happens there is, is more kind of, you know, targeting consumers. So you'll see a lot more happening in, you know, the card skimming space, the ATM skimming space, you know, because that, that there's a lot of mass, you know, this end mass in that. But, you know, talking about you know, firmware, if, it, if it's tapping or, or hacking, you know, the phone manufacturing, the mobile phone manufacturing facility and getting your hands on the firmware in some way, you're not going to see a lot of conversation, you know, public conversation happen, but it's definitely there. And, and at the end of the day, you see it, you know, come out of, you know, the, those regions where, you know, phones are coming out and they're already hacked right out of the box. So yeah, the short answer would be yes. Fascinating. So guys, we've been talking about a lot of phishing attacks and other scams being used against consumers and, and generally end users. Dan, what trends in cybercrime are you seeing targeting businesses today? So that's a good question, Nate. And again, kind of if I link that to the, you know, to this previous conversation we had about demographics and and you know, trying to explain this the increase in phishing attacks and what we're seeing. So, you know, when you look at the like the West African attackers, you know, I I'd, I'd categorize them as, you know, the mimickers or the copycats. And they'll just, you know, they'll wait for these tools to become free. And so as ransomware becomes free and accessible, you're now seeing, you know, these small, either individuals or very small teams out of West Africa, and they're now launching, you know, all these ransomware attacks, you know, across the globe. So, you know, looking at the risk to, you know, companies and enterprises. So obviously ransomware has been, you know, very, you know, up there in the news. And again, it comes back to the fact that, you know, ransomware as a tool is now freely available. You could probably Google, you know, different ransomware tools and, and find the source code and then launch that attack. And then the other thing that we're seeing a lot of is, is the business email compromise, you know, what is known as the business email compromise, where it's social engineering. It's not really a spear phishing attack per se, but it is a social engineering attack against a very specific individual within a company. So usually what you'll see is, you know, the CFO or the accountant within a firm will get an email from the CEO or, or, you know, from pertaining to be from the CEO saying that, hey, can you pay this invoice to this vendor? Here's their bank account number, transfer, you know, $10,000 to this bank account. And obviously this accountant, you know, they're sitting there at their table, they get this email from, you know, the so-called the CEO, and they take action and they transfer the money. You know, this problem, this challenge of business email compromise has grown significantly to the tune of billions of dollars that are being lost, you know, to these scammers. And again, it's basically leveraging social media, you know, looking at looking through LinkedIn, looking for, you know, the accountants in these firms, 
finding them and it's not so much a needle in a haystack, you know, leveraging tools like LinkedIn. It's very easy to identify these individuals. The emails come across and you can see that they've used Google Translate to form these emails, but they score. And again, you know, looking at the at these types of hackers, the the bottom feeders, if you will, they're leveraging freely available tools, they're leveraging social media, and they're getting away with, you know, what might appear as small amounts of money per attack. But when you add them all up, you know, it's, it's billions of dollars that are being lost to these hackers. So that's a good question, or that poses a good question, and that makes me think of an interesting question, Dan. So are you seeing a shift in your work with, with the team more so focused on just intelligence harvesting or data harvesting from those social media networks? Or are you seeing actual infiltration and compromise of the networks themselves and then operations occurring within the, the context of the social media ecosystem? Or are you seeing both? So what we're seeing in social media, obviously, you know, we're seeing a lot of, or you don't really see it. You can assume that the reconnaissance is taking place because again, you know, considering the people that you're dealing with and the fact that they, you know, they don't want to invest too much time in their attack. They're going to use, you know, Facebook, they're going to use LinkedIn to harvest information about individuals and then leverage that in their attacks. Obviously, you know, if they get their hands on account information, you know, if they get your Facebook account, they might use that to post, you know, stuff on your wall, links to infection, you know, malware infection sites, et cetera, et cetera. That, you know, we see that happening. In terms of, you know, hacking or getting into the social media systems, you know, we know from the past that that's happening, but it's not something that, that I can talk to. You know, again, it's not so much our level of, of, you know, what we do here. But I will say that, you know, we were speaking about the commercialization of cybercrime earlier in, the, in this chat. And really what we are seeing in, over the last year or so is pretty much the socialization of cybercrime. And, and you can go online at this very moment. You can go on Facebook. If you search for the term CVV2, so, you know, with credit cards in mind, that's the last three digits or the three digits on the back of the card. So if you search for that term on Facebook right now, CVV2, you will come across credit card numbers out there in the open. And and what we're seeing is that, you know, the bad guys are now leveraging social media as a platform to market and conduct their business. Because if, if you think about it, I mean, what is the goal of social media? Social media is about bringing, you know, like-minded people together, you know, connecting like-minded individuals together, getting them to share information and, you know, talk with each other and enrich each other. And so the bad guys are looking at this and saying, hey, you know, why don't we use social media so that we can better connect, you know, with like-minded individuals? And so you can find groups for, you know, credit card skimming, for credit card selling, for DDoS bots, for, you know, malware, et cetera, et cetera. And this is happening out in the open. You know, you can join these groups, you can join the conversation and they'll share methods about, you know, how to hack, you know, merchants, how to card, you know, different stuff. And that's kind of what we're seeing happen on, on the social media platforms. It's basically the use of the platform to conduct their business. That's fascinating. So these fraudsters, these, these criminals, regardless of level of sophistication or knowledge, are leveraging social media platforms such as Facebook in open, clear text communication to describe tradecraft and methodology for the express purpose of committing fraud and criminal activity. That's fascinating. Yeah, you can go online now and you can just search for these terms and, and you'll find it. It's right there in the open. 
and it's happening, you know, across the globe. Obviously, you know, Facebook being the number one social media platform in the world, we see a lot of it happen on Facebook, but, you know, we've seen it happen on Vcontact, Odnoklasniki in, in the Russian-speaking space, Baidu Tieba and QQ in the Chinese-speaking space, and they're all being leveraged, again, to connect, you know, to help connect these individuals, these hackers, and help them, you know, get their business done. And it's interesting, I mean, when you look at also, you know, we did some work on, you know, link analysis about who belongs to, you know, which identity belongs to which group, et cetera, et cetera. We fingerprinted hundreds and hundreds of groups and over, I think it was about almost nearly 300,000 unique identities that were participating. This was mid last year. By the end of the year, by the end of 2016, that had already grown threefold. And it was interesting to see, you know, when again, coming back to like the Russian speaking arena, identities were never used in more than one group. And again, coming back to the, the you know, the, the famous Russian SecOps. So they only burned an identity in a single group. Whereas if you look at Latin America, you look at West Africa, you look at, you know, the India, Indian speaking and the Indonesians, Indonesia speaking space, they were all using the same identity in a number of groups. So it's, it's you know, it's, 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 a, it's a really interesting ecosystem and, and development, you know, leveraging social media for their business. Fascinating. Yeah, thank you, Dan. Guys, I think we're getting close to our wrapping up point here, but I wanted to close with one last question for both of you. We've been talking about a variety of threats with high success rates and, and certainly high incentives for, for the attackers themselves. What can end users, you know, the average listener do to protect themselves from these kinds of threats? I might start with saying that there's no such thing as a free lunch and don't believe, you know, the emails that you get. You know, always question the, the integrity of the email. You know, if you're an accountant, if you're getting an email from, you know, your boss or, you know, your CEO, look for the telltale signs of, you know, spelling mistakes. And if you're not sure, just ask. I mean, you'd rather ask your CEO if he really wants you to transfer the $10,000 or, you know, transfer the $10,000 and then deal with, with the outcome of doing that. And then, you know, just be weary of everything that's happening out there. Don't believe what you see. Yeah. Just question everything. Yeah. I think that that's, that's actually solid advice, you know. I think that we're taught, or we, or at least previous generations were taught to try to be open-minded and to be less skeptical and scrutinous of people and their intentions. But the advent of the internet and specifically social media, right, and the, the massive explosion in popularity of those platforms has really changed a lot of that, right? So Dan brings up a good point. I think caution is, is key. Thought being cautious is key. I would also say that, you know, teaching that type of thought and ideology to young people is really paramount, right? Because that's, I think, and this is actually an interesting point, Dan, you touched about on this a little bit with mobility earlier on in social media. There's a, I don't know how many millions upon millions, but let's just say billions of young people, <laughs> people younger than us, who are actively involved in social media in various forms on major platforms and also minor ones too that are beginning to pick up speed and momentum, most of which are, are, are driven by mobile, mobile application use cases and, and ecosystems. So I think the reality, and it's safe to say that what Dan is describing is occurring within traditional, larger social media ecosystems, you can you can rest assured that similar types of fraudulent activities occurring in those smaller ones. And the net effect, I think, is that people, even young ones, use their mobile devices to store the, the very types of credentials that Dan's referring to, credit card information, CVV2 information, all that kind of salient detail that can easily be absconded with from a good, solid social media-driven campaign. So, yeah, I think being cautious is key. Yeah, and then I'll, I'll also Thanks just add that. that yeah, I'll, I'll also, ahead, yeah, Nate, I'll just add, you know, also at the end of the day, I mean, you know, we don't want to grow up paranoid. And I think, 
you know, we as an industry, you know, the security industry, I think we're doing a very good job at, you know, developing the tools that, you know, the banks, you know, financial institutions, enterprises use and deploy. And then, you know, credentials, to Will's point, the fact that credentials, you know, are being stored on, on you know, phones or whatever it is, you know, that's eventually going to go away. And, you know, when we get into the whole big data analytics, et cetera, et cetera, machine learning, all those buzzwords, it is going to play a very key role in, in the fight against fraud and cybercrime. And I think, you know, if you ask me, that's going to be the winning factor going forward. Cool. Well, Dan, Will, thank you guys so much. I think we're going to wrap up episode four of the Digital Guardian podcast here. And to our listeners, stay tuned for our next episode, first week of May with Rafal Los. Guys, thank you both for joining us and we'll have to do this again soon. Excellent. Thanks very much, Nate. Thanks, Dan. Take care.